Welcome to another episode of Mutual Growth, a podcast by Penn Community Bank. I'm your host, Aaron Clark. Today, we're once again joined by Dorothy Jaworski, Penn Community Bank Director of Treasury and Risk Management, to get her thoughts on the state of the economy and her forecast on what comes next. After the show is over, be sure to check out the show notes and links to resources at pencommunitybank.com slash podcast. All righty. Dorothy Jaworski, welcome back to the show. Thanks, Aaron. A lot to uh, a lot to get to, as always, as we look at the quarter that was and the quarter that will become. Um, so let's let's dive farther back than last quarter and, and just give us a recap of, of the beginning of the year, quarter one, quarter two. What have we seen now that we're halfway through uh, 2023, believe it or not? Yeah, I can't believe it's that we're halfway through already. Um, you know, it, and now it's summertime. Um, but looking back, uh, you know, starting with the first quarter, you know, rates, interest rates are the primary thing that's been happening. The Federal Reserve continued raising rates early in the year. They raised rates 25 basis points in February, March, and May. And, you know, that was 25 basis points each. And then they they deviated starting in February from the large increases that they were doing last year. So it's an indication that they're getting closer to the end. In June, however, they chose not to change rates at all. So they didn't raise them at their meeting. They left them alone, but they did emphasize they could raise them later on in July or September. So, you know, what we're looking at is short-term rates are now much higher than long-term rates. They continue to, um, you know, raise the short-term rate, which they control. That whole situation is called an inverted yield where, you know, short rates are much higher. Short-term rates are up 500 basis points or 5%, and long-term rates are up 200 basis points. So long-term rates don't respond totally to the Fed. They have to look ahead at inflation, which, you know, I'll get into that in a minute, that's falling. Um, and they also have to look at the economic help. And, you know, it, it is weakening. So, you know, what I've seen happen in the first quarter is the economy is slowing. Manufacturing is down, confidence is down, both on the business side and the consumer side. Um, housing was really down early in the first quarter. Recently, that's had a little bit of a rebound. And mostly it was new home sales. And I believe that builders are providing incentives to clear out their inventory because they had way too much inventory. Um, business investment is down. I saw it in the GDP numbers, especially inventories and the retail side is down more than, you know, the wholesale side. So, you know, the only part of the economy that's still chugging along, you know, fairly strong is the consumer spending. That has been, um, you know, that has been mostly on services such as travel, entertainment, um, you know, eating out at restaurants, things like that. You know, so it's mostly consumers have shifted from piling on and buying goods, you know, a couple of years ago to now, you know, treating themselves to services. So they still have excess savings, probably left over from the pandemic stimulus. And they're, they are using their credit cards. Mm. 
so that you know that could be an impact later on when they realize you know how big those balances are and how high those rates are but gdp in the first quarter it was just revised this morning came in at two percent and the fourth quarter 0.6 the estimate for the quarter that we're in is 1.9 percent and the atlanta fed provides that projection so they're saying 1.9 right now so we have slowed to about two percent stocks however they rallied pretty strongly year to date there's been some volatility but the s p is up 14 percent so far this year and nasdaq is up 29 percent and mostly nasdaq is up a lot because of the latest investment craze which is ai generative ai and things like the chat GBT, um, you know, they're, everybody's talking about how they can incorporate that in their businesses. But you wanna be cautious and slow because we don't fully understand exactly what that, you know, software is gonna do. So, you know, who knows? And then, um, you know, sadly in the first quarter, we had a banking crisis. We had uh, three large banks in the US fail and then one European bank failed. So, you know, what happened is, you know, the FDIC took over and organized another bank to come in and acquire most of the assets and the deposits. So, you know, it, it calmed the markets, you know, temporarily. But, you know, the, the failures were caused mainly by high interest rates and nervous large depositors especially with the Silicon Valley Bank, that was the largest one to fail. Um, it created, you know, what's called a classic run on the bank. Up to 45% of their investors were demanding their money, you know, to withdraw it on basically the same day. So, you know, it, it was very hard to, for them to raise cash, you know, to, to satisfy all of that. Yeah, let's you know staying staying on that topic there of, of SVB and, and some of the turmoil in in the financial sector. Um, I want to get your sense, um, both in your role in kind of looking at the the, the impact to the the sector from the economic side, but also from your role as the bank's you know analyst and, and treasurer to kind of understand what the reaction from that had been. You know, obviously right away there was a lot of concern would it trickle and particularly into a larger run on regional banks or maybe even smaller institutions. Kind of what what was the takeaway from it in real time and how did it impact, uh, you know, your role with the bank and bank community banks operations? Yeah, um, you know, right away, you know, we saw, you know, the crisis unfolding. And then over the weekend, you know, the FDIC took action and, you know, a second bank was taken over. Um, you know, so what we did is we, you know, we looked at the situation of those two banks and Silicon Valley Bank sold a lot of securities at losses to fund some of the, you know, outflows in deposits. And then they said, well, we're going to raise capital. In the meantime, bank stocks are, you know, prices are falling tremendously, there was no way to replace their capital. So they, they realized the loss and their capital ratios were simply too low. But we, we also looked at, um, you know, how much in large deposits, like above the FDIC limit, did they have? Silicon Valley had about 90% um, of their deposits 
were above, well above, you know, the FDIC limit of 250,000. Some of their deposits were in the billions, you know, per customer. And what they did, they attracted a lot of venture capital. So small tech firms that did IPOs, you know, raised money and went to Silicon Valley Bank as their bank. So, you know, of course they got nervous all at once and, you know, many people were recommending you get your money out and all that. So we, we then, you know, looked at our own deposit base and we have about 14% of uninsured deposits, which is much, much less. And, you know, that's a number that we, you know, if all of them chose to withdraw at once, we would easily be able to cover that with our sources of cash our sources of borrowing and we would not have to sell securities at a loss um, you know the regulators in the fdic you know they stepped in they handled mergers for those banks some of the unique issues you know they they had such large percentages of those deposits above fdic limits and you know it forced all of us to look at you know our own deposits our own ability to borrow whether, you know, we have enough cash on hand or, you know, the borrowing ability. As an analyst, I'm looking at these numbers, you know, for banks, as well as their capital levels. Silicon Valley and Signature Bank, you know, once they did, you know, took losses on their, you know, investments, you know, that they were selling, their capital ratios fell very low. So, you know, our capital ratios are typically higher normally because we're a mutual we don't have access to the outside market so we tend to keep them much higher to begin with so you know we we are insulated from that kind of impact um i look at also you know the earnings record those banks were earning pretty well until the end but you know what's their long-term record what were they doing the past couple quarters you know what are they projected to do are they still profitable you know, are, are, you know, banks diversified enough? Like when you look at Silicon Valley Bank, they were not diversified in their deposit base. So much was these large, you know, tech firms with their deposits. If you look at our deposit base, we are well diversified across retail and business. And we also have municipal deposits. So we have, you know, a good mix. And, you know, the business deposits, some of those are the larger amounts that I spoke of above the limits, but those are successful companies in our area. And many of them came and discussed the situation with us and, you know, they were comfortable and, you know, we still have the deposits. We did not have any kind of substantial deposit withdrawal. So, um, you know, one other thing that you typically want to look at is, you know, do the banks have a good loan portfolio? Is it diversified? Is it some business, some consumer, some residential mortgage? You know, um, SVB Bank did not have much in the way of loans at all. They had a whole bunch of securities and they bought long-term ones. Um, do they have strong coverage for credit losses? Uh, what we do, you know, we have a pretty strong process here um, to put a reserve for credit losses. So we look at that, we compare it to our peer banks in the area, you know, so we are relatively strong in that regard. And, you know, there's some fear that, you know, banks will now, because of this crisis, tighten credit standards. 
you know, maybe raising the rate, maybe making, you know, raising the criteria, you know, for a business to borrow, just to be on the safe side. And that can lead to, you know, the economy going down, you know, or weakening over time from that. It also would prevent refinancing for some of the loans. You know, it's CRE loans, you know, they have a, like a five-year time period. Anything made in 2018 at really low rates is now going to reprice up, you know, to the current level of rates, which are much higher. So, you know, that could create some issues. And then finally, um, the Federal Reserve looks at the top banks. I think there's 23 of them. And they do periodic stress tests. And they, you know, they say, well, would you be weather able to weather a storm where the economy sinks a lot? where unemployment shoots up from, you know, the current three point something to 10. You know, what if CRE prices are falling a lot and housing prices? So they run all that kind of thing and they did find them all to be strong and they all passed. So that's some comfort that the industry is relatively strong. Shifting gears, because you mentioned the Fed I, and, and even in your response to the first question, kind of looking back uh, on Q1 and Q2, we've spent so much time talking about the Fed, talking about the rate uh, environment, their efforts to combat inflation. Um, you've shared your opinions on when you thought they should be pausing to allow for uh, kind of the review of what's working or or um, what's not. So at this point, can you just expand a, a little bit? I know you mentioned inflation rates kind of holding steady or even dropping a little bit. What's the Fed's current posture? What do you think that they might consider? And, and what are they looking for ultimately when it comes to an inflation number that they might feel comfortable going back to a more traditional, uh, well, what we'll call a more traditional recent rate environment versus where we're at. Right, right. Um, you know, the first thing, the Fed had to raise interest rates in response to inflation. You know, they, they had no choice because it's one of their jobs is to keep prices stable. And they were not. So the prices were soaring. They had to raise rates. They also have to worry about unemployment. And that really hasn't moved that much. But, um, you know, this recent cycle by the Fed has been one for the record books, raising rates so quickly, you know, in just a little over a year, they went up 500 basis points. Now, if you look back to the beginning of 22, they said they would raise rates three times or 75 basis points. It lulled everyone into this, you know, situation where, you know, oh, they're not, you know, if rates go up 1%, that's not too bad. Well, here they're up 500 basis points. It's just, you know, it, it, it is kind of outrageous. Um, but they started in March of 22. And then, you know, the last time they raised rates was in May and they, they did 25 basis points again. The Fed funds rate is now five and a quarter. And keep that in mind when I go through some of the things, you know, some of the inflation measures in a minute. But they did not change rates at the June meeting, but they did, I call it threatened to um, raise rates two more times. Their projections came out as they normally do quarterly. And most of the committee members said we should raise rates another, you know, two times, two times 25. So they did threaten to do that in future meetings. But I think the truth is they don't know for sure. They're, they, they're buying time to see, you know, you mentioned going back and, you know, assessing what you've done so far. I think they're buying time to, to see that, the cumulative effect. 
But you know, the reality is inflation is declining and it's taking pressure off of them. I watch a number of um, inflation indicators and they're all down, you know, year over year. Give you some examples. Um, CPI, the most recent one that came out was for the month of May. And that was up for It was 9.1% June last year. So it's cut in half from that. The producer price index is even more dramatic. Year over year, it's up 1.1%, which is kind of incredible. The peak for that one was back in 22, and that was 11.7%. And that was indicative of, remember all those supply chain issues and, you know, goods were scarce and, you know, everybody was bidding up the prices. So that, you know, that tells me the supply chain appears to be okay now. You know, nobody's outbidding each other on that. Um, some of the Fed measures, they use something called PCE, personal consumption expenditure. And they do, you know, it's a formula and it's a quarterly number. That number for the first quarter was 4.2%. And the high about a year ago was 7%. So that's down pretty dramatically too. And their favorite one, you know, this is about the only one that hasn't come down a lot, um, the core PCE. And by core, they exclude food and energy prices. And that is currently 5%. So just under their, um, you know, Fed funds rate. I think what they were trying to do is get that Fed funds rate above the inflation rate. And they probably focused on that because they do talk about that one a lot. Um, there's one other one that I follow a lot. It's the employment cost index, and it's a quarterly number. The fourth quarter was the most recent one I have, is was up 1% for the quarter. A year ago, it had been up 1.4. So that one is down also. Um, the University of Michigan provides uh, consumer sentiment type numbers. They also ask consumers in their survey what they think inflation is going to be. And in the long run, most consumers said about 3%. So that's down from four, not, you know, six months ago. Mm -hmm. And if you look at what's built into the treasury market, um, the 10 year point, there's a normal treasury you can buy, just a standard one. And there's one that's indexed to inflation. So the difference between them should be an inflation expectation. Right now that's 2.2. So that's not run away by any means. The Fed should be pretty happy with that. And then the final thing I'll mention there is um, the money supply. You know, the Fed's affecting the money supply constantly. That has been negative year over year since December. And it's the first time since 1960 when this series has been published that it's been negative year over year. So my theory is if, you know, money supply was runaway high percentages in 2020 and 21, now, if it's, you know, that caused inflation. Now, if it's negative, that's going to pull inflation down naturally. So the Fed can rely on that. Because what they're doing, um, in addition to raising rates, they're also letting their portfolio run off and mature. And that's draining money out of the system. So, you know, that naturally is going to help bring things down. And then, you know, moving forward, you know, I mentioned they have, I call it threatened, they threatened us with two more rate hikes. 
um, totaling 50 basis points. Um, you know, I, I don't believe they're necessary because I mentioned the inflation rates. The Fed funds rate is already above them. So they, they could buy some time and just see it, sit and watch, make sure it's still on the downtrend. Um, but one thing about the Fed, you know, I've experienced it over many, many years. They always go too far, whether they're raising rates or, you know, taking them down. They probably went too far keeping them at zero for so long. Now, you know, they're probably, you know, too high right now. You mentioned some of the some of the indicators. Um, obviously, at the beginning, you always talk about the um, the yield curve as one of those uh, one of those indicators. You mentioned some of them as they reflect to inflation. We we know job numbers can be an indicator. Specifically, looking at the strength of the economy, um, where where are we at now? Two years plus on from a pandemic, three years on from the onset of the pandemic. Are we in a strong economy, or should people be feeling that we're in a strong economy, or um, or is it still not back to where it should be? Well, I think we're sinking below where we were pre-pandemic. We were about two and a half percent GDP growth. You know, we're down to two now with projected in this quarter too. So, you know, it is it's weakening somewhat other than I mentioned the consumer. The consumer is still spending, you know, business investment is down, you know, so they're, they're kind of offsetting so that we have positive growth. But, um, you know, once if the consumer turns and, you know, cuts back on spending, that's when we're going to start realizing, you know, much weaker growth. But for, you know, I think for now it's okay. But, you know, if you look at some of the indicators, you know, they are not that positive. You know, they, they indicate recession, you know, in the future. Um, the main one I look at is, if you recall, the leading economic indicators, it's an index. And that has, that projects what growth should look like six to nine months from now. Um, May was negative 0.7 and percent, and April was negative 0.6%. Now that's been negative for almost a year, you know, pointing downward. So we, we are experiencing declining growth. Um, stock markets, they're another leading indicator. They would say, oh, things look okay right now. But, um, you know, the S&P I mentioned was up 14%. NASDAQ's twice that because of, you know, the craze on AI. And we're still down eight to 14% from where we were at the end of 21. So we still have not fully recovered. We just have these bouts of, you know, the market will rally, sell off, rally, you know, but we haven't recovered any kind of highs. Um, corporate profits, this worries me a lot because in the first quarter they were down 5.1% and the fourth quarter they were down 2%. The quarter before that was no change. So, you know, we've now gone three quarters in a row with really no profits. That's not a good sign. That, yeah, that tells me why they're cutting back on investment. But the possibility that they'll start cutting costs is, you know, it's getting higher and higher. And, you know, that could mean job loss. So, you know, that worries me a little bit. Most of the business surveys out there, S&P does one, ISM, Institute of Supply Management, and then the Philly Fed and the New York Fed, they also do regional surveys. All of those are weak, mostly negative numbers. There's good news in them because prices paid or fall in, in those regional surveys. 
and the national ones too. You know, so that that's a good sign that inflation is coming down, and the Fed can kind of stop. Now you mentioned the inverted yield curve, that is becoming more inverted recently. The um, there's two different points that I look at: the 10-year versus the three-month Treasury. Normally, the 10-year would be higher than the shorter rate. You're going to buy bonds long. You want some extra return, but that's not the case today. Um, it's negative 156 basis points, and that became inverted in October of 22. The 10-year and the two-year, that is currently negative 100 basis points, and that inverted initially in July of 22. Now, inverted curves, most people have a rule of thumb that they precede recessions by 12 to 18 months and 16 months on average. So, you know, if you look at the July of 22 one, you know, that means the end of this year, you know, pretty much. October, it buys us a little time, maybe early 24. But, you know, on average, you would expect a recession and they keep getting worse and worse. So it's not like it's oh, suddenly improving and the yeah, outlook's better. It's it's worsening in my mind. Now leading inflation, that continues to drop year over year. There's an index that comes out every month and currently it's down 7% year over year in May. April was 7.6% down. So, you know, every month we're experiencing a lower leading index, but the leading index looks at inflation you know, out six to nine months, so it thinks it'll be lower yet. So that, that is a good sign for us, that the Fed can kind of stop and not raise rates anymore. And then I mentioned the money supply earlier. You know, that is, you know, tremendously, you know, it was tremendously up during the pandemic, and now it's starting to be a negative number. So we, we don't have any experience on that, but logic would tell us that, you know, that's going to pull inflation down too. So taking all, all of this into consideration, you mentioned recession and, and kind of the horizon for that, um, the indicators pointing towards that. I know some of the last uh, times we've had you on, there's been a semantic, more academic discussion of what is a recession and do we meet mm -hmm. the criteria. Um, looking out into quarter four, maybe Q1 of 2024, is, is the view that the indicators show a recession in the definition, in the commonly understood definition or, or kind of the academic definition that was kind of debated at the beginning of this year, late last year? Yeah, uh, well, it, it, it's hard because we have one organization that declares recession. The classic definition used to be two quarters in a row of negative growth. We had that in 2022, the first and the second quarter and then bounced right back. So, you know, a lot of people attributed that to inventory building and, you know, then they let it run down. So, you know, who knows? But, you know, technically, if you read your textbooks, we had one already. But, um, you know, so I, I would look at that criteria, you know, are we going to have negative growth in the future? You know, for a series of quarters. But, um, you know, there are signs, you know, that the economy is weakening. You know, GDP just came in lower than the fourth quarter. It's been, you know, falling slightly each each quarter as it comes out. Business confidence is down, and so consumer confidence is relatively low, although that could be volatile. 
Um, the inverted yield curve, that's the one that's really telling me that, you know, it's, it's coming at some point. You know, we only have time periods to work with, averages. You know, it. I believe it will come soon. You know, based on that 16-month average. You know, we're so far inverted that I, I can't see that, you know, going back to normal soon. Mm -hmm. And, you know, what, what would make it go back to normal? is the Fed cutting rates in response to a recession. Then, you know, it'll become a positive spread again, generally from the Fed cutting rates. Um, you know, the Fed's frustrated by the low unemployment numbers. You mentioned we had strong growth again in, you know, April and May, you know, job, payrolls were up above 300,000, you know, so it, it's still relatively strong, but that doesn't give us any clue to the future. And I think May is probably seasonal hiring for the summer. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I'm curious to see the June report. You know, that could be strong again. And then you'll see September being re really weak when that the seasonal workers all go back to school or something. Sure. You know, so it, it's impossible to know. But, you know, we are seeing, you know, the unemployment rate is very low. It's 3.7%. A year ago, it was like 3.5. So it's really hardly budged. And, you know, we are seeing layoff announcements just about every day. I talked to my neighbor yesterday morning. He's just been laid off. Tomorrow's his last day. So, you know, it's it's hitting people we know now. And then job openings, you know, they, they're very volatile. They've gone up, they've gone down. Um, but it seems like, you know, everybody, you know, they still, companies still can't fill their positions. You know, so they're, they're you know, keeping those jobs out there. There would typically, if, if we went into recession, there would typically be an increase in the unemployment rate of half a percent to one percent. That's a general rule of thumb. You know, you'd never know. But, you know, and that would be over, like, say, a six month period. But that could also that could translate into a million jobs lost across our economy. So, you know, that would that would probably put us in recession because, you know, the spending would have to go down for you know for that you know consumer spending it has continued at a modest pace in the second quarter retail sales were up in may um i think it was 0.3 percent and personal spending was up 0.8 percent that was an april number i haven't seen the may one yet but that was relatively strong too i think consumers you know my theory is i think they'll spend over the summertime they're going to go on vacation. They're going to enjoy themselves. And then in, come in, um, you know, September, they're going to say, my God, what have we done? Look at our credit card balance. You know, we're going to have to start paying that off more quickly. Um, some people are going to be impacted by the student loan payments starting up again. And I think that's August. You know, it, it's, it's relatively soon, but I think it starts in August. What they're going to do is have to make a payment again. But a lot of them are floating rates and the rate's going to be a lot higher. So it, it could be a shock to a lot of people. You know, I worry a little bit about that. And then, of course, the credit card balances. But, you know, I think the best timing for recession, you know, based on the inverted yield curve and, the, you know, the lead times, you know, it's later this year or early 2024. Um, the good news is that would cause inflation to fall. The Fed would cut rates, and they probably will have to cut rates a lot. Hmm. 
looking at this, obviously, we, we, we tend to look domestically uh, at a lot of these indicators, especially for decision making at the bank level. But for folks that are, you know, looking at, you know, hearing the word recession or, or talking about the, the market as a whole, can you give us any kind of insight on the international status of the economy? Is this a challenge that other major developed nations are, are dealing with? Is there fears of a global recession? What, what, can, we, what can we look to um, on a global scale? Yeah, um, you know, you are right. We are going going to probably have a global recession because major economies they're they're all facing the same thing. Um, the issues are inflation, and their central banks are also raising rates, you know, dramatically for them because you know rates were so low for so long, and the economies are getting weaker. It, this includes Europe, Japan, the UK. And there's indications that Europe's already in recession. I don't know that they've declared it yet, but a lot of people are saying that they're already having issues, you know, with unemployment going up some. They're also highly dependent on like importing oil and gas. So they're subject to the volatility of those prices. Um, inflation, you know, I mentioned it's about 4% on the CPI here in the US. It's 8.7% in the UK, so twice ours, 6.1% in Europe, and 3.5% in Japan. So, you know, everybody's facing an inflation issue. Now, um, China, I think they have their own set of issues. You don't hear much about inflation impacting them, but they're having, uh, you know, except maybe real estate prices, but they're having issues with production, shipping, um, you know, maintaining their sales levels. And I think this is because a lot of major countries, you know, including us, we're trying to build alternate supply chains because of such disruption that we experienced back in, you know, it was mainly 2021. We weren't getting any product, you know, it was just insane. Uh, we want to avoid those severe issues. And, you know, some of the products that hurt the most were the semiconductors and the auto parts. It held up, you know, production here in the U.S. for months on end. You know, it was it was just insane. Um, but some manufacturing is coming back to our own country. But I think ourselves in Europe, we're looking to countries like India to maybe start up some production so we have an alternate source. And I, it wasn't lost on me that the um, Prime Minister of India was here visiting at the White House the other day. So I think that's probably what the discussions are. What kind of manufacturing can we set up, you know, using their big population, you know? So I think things like that are really hurting China, which leads me to believe China will have to start cutting their prices for people to, you know, like undercutting prices. That could make inflation fall really quickly. So. You know, who knows what's going to happen. Uh, our our dollar in the U.S. remains very strong. Those implying that those other countries have weak, you know, weak currencies. So uh, part of the GDP report said that our exports were pretty strong because of the strong dollar, and the strong dollar keeps the price of their goods coming in keeps it lower. So that helps inflation as well. 
as as we sit here today, and I know we've we, we've kind of looked out at what the numbers are, are telling you, but as we sit here today, what are you kind of projecting out for for quarter three as we look forward in the near term, and then um, you know as far out as as December and into early next year, what what should folks um, maybe be planning on or, or at least looking to, to, to be up to date? Yeah, I think, you know, taking the third quarter, you know, July and August, I think they'll be strong. And everybody enjoy your vacations, you know. <laughs> and September will be a little bit of a reckoning maybe, you know, in the fall. But I mentioned earlier that, you know, the inverted yield curve, that's telling me that, you know, the end of this year, early 2024, we could be in recession. Now, how how bad the recession is is still in question. It may not be as bad as ones in the past. You know, the worst ones were probably the early 90s and the early 80s going back. You know, we've had we had the pandemic recession that was tremendously down and then tremendously up. You know, it lasted like two quarters, you know, but um, I'm not sure of the extent of how bad it would become. And then, the, you know, the Fed can always lower rates to make it not as bad. So, you know, we have tools to, you know, keep that in check. But, you know, the inverted yield curve is telling me that, it, you know, it's coming at some point soon. But, um, you know, consumer spending is holding us up right now. But corporate profits being negative, I think that's, that's a bad sign for the future. You know, as people make their plans, um, higher interest expenses weighing, you know, it's weighing on companies, especially small business. You know, they can't afford, you know, I don't know how they can afford, you know, higher costs of everything with inflation and higher rates, you know, funding their businesses. And then consumers are facing the same thing. Credit cards are usually driven by short-term rates. So those are up as well. And not to mention mortgage rates are up. They're up 250 basis points from, you know, two years ago. They're, you know, six to, you know, six and a half-ish percent right now. You know, they were, you know, four, two years ago, they were three before that. So, you know, it, it's a big change in people's budgets. But GDP has been weak. You know, it is weakening. And, you know, the high rates and high debt levels, you know, the government piled on much more debt during the pandemic years. The debt ceiling compromise that we had back on June 3rd, that, you know, the federal spending is supposed to be coming down to match prior year levels. So that will reduce growth a little bit, you know, not having all that money flooding in. And then, you know, I expect, a, you know, the fairly strong early third quarter, um, we could see slower growth in the fourth quarter, you know, as businesses reassess, consumers possibly slow their spending. Um, you know, bad news would be layoffs if they start to come, you know, and higher unemployment. Good news would be falling inflation. Inflation has fallen in every recession we've ever had, so it will fall this time too. And then, you know, maybe the Fed has to worry about negative inflation, hmm. declining prices. That's, you know, one of the worst things, you know, that we can experience is deflation because it takes the value of all the assets down too, you know, so that, you know, I'm not projecting that scenario, but you know, that who knows, um, you know, but the Fed would start cutting rates. And I think 
you know, much more quickly than they would project. And then, you know, most economists are projecting like a 60% chance of a mild or modest recession. And only about 25% of them are saying severe recession. Now that 25% is a little higher than normal. Usually most people would say 10% severe recession. So, you know, it's, a, it's, it's twice that, but, you know, based on the inverted yield curve and a couple of those leading indicators, most people would say that. So we'll have to see how this affects the economy. You know, the markets, the markets will tell us what's happening. If rates start to plummet on the long end, you know, the long-term rates, we know that they're building in recession, you know, declining inflation, recessionary scenarios. Um, we'll see how it plays out. Um, I think the Fed probably should stop raising rates and assess the cumulative impact before they do anything else. And then one of the things that, you know, I'm starting to think about in 2024, we're entering a major election. So how will that impact every, you know, how will politics impact everything? So it remains to be seen. <laughs> it's always a challenge. A lot of, a lot of variables for sure to, to take into, to take <laughs> into account. Um, mm -hmm. Dorothy, we appreciate you, you know, looking in your crystal ball and giving us the, the projection for the near term and into, into the future. We, we always appreciate kind of, uh, reviewing some of these indicators and what's in the news and hopefully folks can make an informed decision and stay up to date and hopefully sign up to receive your newsletter so they get this great uh this great detailed information right to their their inbox so we'll include that in the uh the notes for this show but dorothy as always thanks so much for uh for joining us today we look forward to having you on again okay thank you so much aaron i appreciate it and you know have a great summer enjoy I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Mutual Growth, a podcast by Penn Community Bank. Be sure to subscribe and leave us a rating. And as always, keep up with the latest from Penn Community Bank by following us on Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. For more information about this podcast, links to past episodes, or to learn more about community-first banking, just visit PennCommunityBank.com slash podcast. Mutual Growth is the official podcast of Penn Community Bank, member FDIC, Equal Housing Lender. It is produced for the benefit of current and prospective customers and partner organizations. This program is provided solely for educational and entertainment purposes. The information contained herein is based on sources believed to be reliable, but is not represented to be complete and its accuracy is not guaranteed. The opinions, views, and estimates expressed are those of the presenters at the date of production and are subject to change without notice. Please email marketing at pencommunitybank.com regarding booking or repurposing any part of this podcast.